0: Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to talk about the topic today. And what specifically we're going to be talking about is nine thyroid supplements that every hypothyroid patient should consider using. And this is based off of scientific studies that I'm going to be talking about today and linked to in this blog post. Um, But also, and probably more importantly, is the experience that I have, have in treating hundreds of hypothyroid patients. So I've noticed some trends in, these patient, in this patient population, and I want to share all of these things with you. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Dr. Childs. Here's a picture of me. And what you're looking at is uh, a, a screenshot of my blog and a blog post. So if you want to, to get further information, I will provide you with a link to this specific post so that you can look at the figures and the other things that I'm going to be talking about. All right, so let's just jump right in here. And I want to start with this do supplements actually help thyroid function and it's a it's a good question to ask Um, and the answer is definitely yes they can not always but they absolutely can help and and there's a couple approaches to this that that i want to talk about Um, and and i want to mention this because there's a lot of articles out there that will say you know and specifically i'm looking at one right here five reasons you should never take a thyroid supplement and you know, that, I think that's bad advice in general. I, I don't think it's a good idea to say that everyone should take this supplement or everyone should take that supplement, but to, to put out a statement that says nobody should take them ever, I, th- I think is, is the wrong way to look, up, look at this. Um, I think uh, a better approach, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later, is, is to look at what your body needs, what your body is deficient in, and then replacing those specific deficiencies. Okay, and you can do this by looking at your blood work and by looking at other factors that that pop up, symptoms, etc. And if you go about it in that way, you can have the the patient will often experience profound results. All right, so let's jump into the nine thyroid supplements that that I generally recommend patients at least look into. Um, But before I do that, I want to talk about this image here, which shows different factors that affect thyroid function. And you can look at this in more detail, but I show this to to say that there are at least 13 different nutrients required in thyroid production, thyroid conversion, and cellular receptor sensitivity, okay? So, that means that there are 13 potential steps in your body that you could be um, deficient in, which would reduce the the amount that your thyroid actually functions, all right? And so, the specific ones I want to, I'm not going to talk about all of these, but I want to go over them. So, I provide a list right here, and I'm just going to, verbalize them right now, Uh, tyrosine, iron, iodine, zinc, selenium, vitamin E, vitamin B2, vitamin B3, vitamin B6, vitamin C, and vitamin D, all required for thyroid production and thyroid conversion. And then on the other side, um, you, well, sorry, those are kind of involved in everything, but specifically, I also want to point out that zinc and vitamin E or vitamin A are also involved in sensitizing the receptor so that thyroid hormone can get into the cell all right and so one of the approaches that i see a lot of a lot of supplement providers or supplement companies take is they say okay well if you look at all of these different nutrients why don't we just jam pack every single one of these into a supplement and then give it to patients and call it you know thyroid boost or whatever you want to want to call it and that's what a lot of thyroid supplements um look like nowadays. But that, that's definitely the wrong approach to take because it doesn't, it doesn't target what your body needs. And that's why a lot of these supplements get uh, a bad reputation, right? They're not, they're not in high enough doses and they're not the right amounts and they're not in the right forms. And because of all of these reasons, they're, they're really just less effective. Um, so let, let's talk about the nine deficiencies that I see and, and most often in hypothyroid patients what symptoms to look out for so you know you may need them, and then how to look and determine it with your blood work or your symptoms if you actually need uh, to supplement with these things. So the first one I want to talk about is vitamin B12. Uh, this, is, this is a really big one. There's a reason I put it number one. Um, based on studies, as many as 40% of patients with hypothyroidism are also B12 deficient. All right, so that's a huge number. Statistically speaking, That's like, you know, 4 out of 10 of you guys listening right now probably have a B12 deficiency. And that's important because it can be tricky to to find out if you fall into that category. And I'll talk about the specific ways to diagnose it if you do. But it's worth mentioning that usually serum B12 levels are not a great indicator. So your serum B12 levels can be normal, um, but that doesn't mean that your cells are getting enough of that B12. So how do you know if you're B12 deficient? Well, I'm going to talk about the labs in a minute. But some of the symptoms worth mentioning here um, include fatigue, shortness of breath, uh, anemia, obviously a big one, um, neurological changes, which can even mimic dementia. That's how powerful this nutrient can be. Um, and then difficulty with concentration or brain fog. And, and I want to point out here that you can see the parallel in some of these symptoms with hypothyroidism, right? So you can get brain fog and confusion with hypothyroidism, but you could also get those symptoms with vitamin B12 deficiency. So it can put you in this situation where you may replace your the the amount of thyroid you may replace your uh, the amount of thyroid hormone you're deficient in with natural desiccated thyroid or T3 or T4, but still have some symptoms. And that's not because you don't have enough thyroid hormone necessarily. It could be that you didn't really treat the nutrient deficiency that exists already. So that's that's why this stuff is so important. Um, hypothyroidism can cause a deficiency. But simply replacing the thyroid hormone that you're deficient in doesn't replace that specific nutrient deficiency. Okay? So um, let's let's talk about how to tell if you actually need vitamin B12. Um, there's three, well, there's there's more than three, but these are the three easiest ways that you can kind of look into it. First, you can check the serum B12 level, um, which is pretty easy, and most doctors don't have a problem ordering. Um, they won't give you grief if you ask for it. Um, and serum B12 by itself isn't great, but Generally, I use it like this. If you're low, like less than five or 600, then I know you're deficient. Um, if you're normal, like greater than 1,000, that doesn't necessarily mean you're okay. So just to put that in perspective, another really sensitive marker is looking at homocysteine levels. So you want your homocysteine levels less than 9. Um, frequently, what I'll see is a, a serum B12 in the 3, 4, 500 range, a homocysteine in the 13, 14 range, and then MCV, um, you know, in the 96, 97 range. That's a patient. Who definitely needs uh, vitamin B12, and and it's worth you know I'll talk about MCV for just a second here. It stands for mean corpuscular volume, and essentially what it is is it's the uh, it's a representation of the size of your red blood cells. Okay, the higher your MCV gets, the bigger your red blood cells get, and you might think, oh well that's great, you know, but it actually isn't. It's because of um it's because of what Vitamin B12 does in the red blood cell, um, and so as they get bigger, they're they're not as quite as functional as they used to be, uh, which is why vitamin B12 deficiency can actually lead to anemia, all right? And MCV is one of those markers. So I use kind of 92 as my cutoff. It, your, your MCV should be less than uh, 92. Greater than 92 is definitely a problem, either folic acid or B12, because only a handful of things actually cause a high MCV. So what I'll do is I'll use all three of these sort of in tandem with one another to determine uh, if a patient actually needs B12. Here I've included a serum level of B12, so you can see this is from one of my patients. This is the vitamin B12, this is their result, and this is the reference range. So, this person's result was 616, and the reference range was 211 to 911. So, if you remember what I said, having a, having a serum B12 in the in kind of the middle range, to me, I, I, I view that as a deficiency because the majority of your B12 shouldn't be in your serum anyway. The point is to get into the cells, and it, this amount in the serum represents a very small amount of the total B12 that should be in your body. So um, look for this number to be greater than, I like to see it greater than 1,000 personally. Uh, and vitamin B12 is a water-soluble vitamin, so any anything in excess you will just pee it right out, so don't worry about too much about that. Um, another important note when it comes to B12 is how you take it. All right, so, I generally recommend in any hypothyroid patient or Hashimoto's patient vitamin B12 injections. Um, there's a reason for that, and that is because thyroid hormone um, helps promote the production of stomach acid, and stomach acid is required for the absorption of B12 in the GI tract. So, if you, you can see the setup we, that you can develop if you have low thyroid. You'll have low stomach acid, which means that you'll absorb less of the B12 that you, st- you know that you take orally, um, even if it is sublingual form. Okay, I've had many patients take it, um, you know, in pill form or in uh, sublingual form. and They still don't get the same effects that you get with an intramuscular injection. So it's definitely worth noting that uh, if you're going to take B12, I would recommend uh, at, at minimum sublingual uh, route, but preferably. Um, Intramuscular or IM injection, and if you do that, you'll want to get methylcobalamin, not cyanocobalamin. So make sure you go into the right place and make sure they're giving you the right stuff, um, especially if you have methylation issues. So generally, the dose that I recommend is one to five thousand micrograms, um, preferably in sublingual form. If you do that route, if you do B twelve, then you'll need. uh, I generally do five thousand mics uh, every seven days or so. Um, Personally, I do I do more than that, but that's you know I, I have I have a better understanding of my own body um, so that, that I just know that's what works for me. So you can do more, but I wouldn't recommend doing that unless you know, you're know you being supervised by a physician. You can see the recommended brand that I use here just by clicking there. Um, so that, that's B12 kind of in a nutshell. I know that's a lot, but it is really, really important. Uh, number two is adrenal support. And I know you guys are pretty familiar with adrenal fatigue and adrenal-related issues, especially in hypothyroidism. What I want to point out here is Uh, The adrenals and the thyroid gland are linked together. Um, So studies have shown that as your TSH rises, your cortisol levels rise. Okay, So the TSH and the cortisol levels seem to to correlate with one another. Um, Hopefully you're aware of the degrees of adrenal uh, fatigue that kind of occur. Generally it starts out with some dysregulation. Uh, You may get elevated cortisol in the beginning as your body tries to keep up with the demand of the stress that you're under. And then towards the end, sort of the later stage, your body tends to poop out, so to speak, and you're unable to really produce the amount of cortisol that your body really needs. All right, so along this, that kind of roller coaster of a ride, you can get any or all of these symptoms here. So how do you know if, if you fall into this category? Well, I let me put it this way. I've never seen a hypothyroid patient who didn't also have adrenal related issues. But if you really want to know, these are the symptoms that you may be experiencing. So constant fatigue, especially in the face of sleeping eight hours per night. This sensation of feeling wired but tired, where it's like, you know, you, you can't close your eyes, but you're just so fatigued. And it's just this weird sensation where you, your mind won't stop going, but but your body's like really tired. It's, it's, they, they term it wired but tired. Uh, I definitely have experienced that in a residency, so I'm pretty familiar with it. A lot of patients with adrenal issues have a crash, usually around 2 to 3 p.m. each day. It um, may occur later, but... Uh, or earlier, but generally speaking, that's when it when it happens. Um, a lot of patients will experience a second wind at night, especially around 10 p.m. So what'll happen is, you know, you'll get up, you'll be dragging, uh, you'll use some caffeine to get you going. Around 2, or 3 p.m. when the caffeine wears off, you have your crash. You're like, okay, you may have another cup of coffee or an energy drink or something like that. It gets you going and you're just getting more and more fatigued by 8 or 9 p.m. And then you're like, I can go to bed right now. You don't. You stay up till 10 and then boom, like it's like a light switch turns on. And now you're full of energy, the energy you wish you had all day. That is, you know, that that's classic adrenal fatigue. Uh, also, patients will have difficulty falling asleep. They may, their mind just may race at night. Um, oh, I just said that one already. Um, basically, an inability to tolerate stressful events. Um, so it's not necessarily the amount of stress that you're under, but it's your body's ability to tolerate um, those events. So if you, like let's say you're just undergoing a normal amount of life stressors and and if you look back in time, you may have thought, you may think to yourself, well, five years ago I was able to tolerate this, and now I can't. That's another sign. Cravings for salty, sugary foods, another big one, and then a weakened immune system. So if you're somebody always getting sick, uh, or if you feel like you have a weakened immune system, it's definitely one of the symptoms of this. Okay. So we'll get into how to test for it and how to tell if you need it. Um, but basically, what I do is this. Uh, there's a lot of lot of information out there, and I'm not going to talk about it too much, but Um, Generally what I do in my patients, um, depending on how bad their symptoms are, I always start with the serum cortisol. I know you guys are going to freak out and say it's not helpful, yada yada yada. I agree with you, um, but it's an easy test and it's helpful if it's low and so it's worth getting initially. And I say that because not everyone really needs to have their salivary urinary cortisol levels checked to prove that they have adrenal related issues. So it's not like you get some secret information when you check your, your salivary cortisol levels and you determine that they're dysregulated. It's not like that somehow gives you an extra set of information. I If, if you basically, basically what I'll do is I'll look at your symptoms and then I'll check your serum cortisol and then if you're a special case or it just doesn't make a lot of sense, that's when I'd move to the urinary testing and I prefer urinary over cortisol testing and you can see what that looks like. So basically what you do is same way as you would do it salivary. You just check your cortisol at four times throughout the day and then you get a pattern much like you've seen before. So Using this example down here, you can see the dysregulation. Um, so this this is somebody. This is kind of a classic uh, pattern of somebody that would uh, be pretty fatigued in the morning. Use high high amounts of caffeine to get them going, and then their morning cortisol level just spikes out of control. Um, you know, and that's that's you can see that a lot in, in, in uh, certain patients. You may even fall out of that into that category. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about the testing that I use, it's called Dutch testing. Um, there's links provided up here. Uh, it works pretty well. So, how to supplement is another kind of important point here. And again, we could talk about this for a very long time, but I'm going to keep it um, a little bit brief, just because we have a bunch of other things to talk about. Uh, so, basically, this is what I what I the way I look at it. If you have a severe case of adrenal fatigue, I tend to use more glandulars. Um, if it's a less severe case, I would tend to use adrenal adaptogens. And then if you have really high levels of cortisol, and you can check that by just checking in the serum, and I'm talking levels like greater than 20 here in the serum at an 8 a.m. Um, kind of test, you can use phosphatidylserine, um, which can attenuate that cortisol level and actually drop it and bring it down. So there's, it's not like there's just one supplement here that you need to be taking. It kind of depends on what's going on in your body and what you're experiencing. So, and this isn't a hard rule, right? If you have really severe, you may respond very well to adaptogens versus the glandulars versus, you know, obviously you don't want to take phosphatidylserine necessarily if your levels are low, but, you know, you kind of have to play that one by ear and, and, you know, get help from your practitioner. Uh, Number three, the next one I want to talk about is zinc. Zinc is really important. Uh, Zinc and selenium, I find that a lot of thyroid patients are deficient in, and and zinc just in general, a lot of patients are deficient in. Uh, And it's important to thyroid function because it does, probably one of the most important things is it's involved in the conversion of T4 to T3. So lower levels of zinc may promote uh, T4 to reverse T3 conversion, as opposed to T4 to free T3 conversion, right? So you basically, low levels of this may may put you in in a situation where your body is producing the metabolite that um, kind of antagonizes the the good thyroid hormone, but that's not all it does. Uh, zinc actually has um, some effects on the immune system and it can help to boost immune function. So patients with autoimmune diseases, um, you know, they tend to do well and have low levels. Uh, it acts as an anti-inflammatory by itself, and then it also reduces oxidative stress. So zinc is zinc is a big deal, and a lot of patients tend to be deficient in it. Um, if if you want to kind of de- determine how to know or if you want to know if you need it there's you can test the serum levels for zinc and you can kind of compare the the copper zinc ratio generally I don't always recommend that simply because there hasn't been a lot of data to show that um, those serum levels are, are a great marker for what's happening in the cells again you just you, you want to think of your blood as a as a stream but What's really important is, is the stream carrying the nutrients into the cells? And getting to the cells is what matters. So we kind of make the assumption, doctors, faith, patients, etc., that if we look inside the blood and we take the amount that we see in the blood, that that amount is probably getting to the cells, but that isn't always the case. So if you want to check, you can do this. Um, check that serum copper uh, uh, zinc ratio. And then what I generally recommend if you're using zinc is you get zinc-bound picolinic acid or picolinate. Um, simply because there is better absorption of this. And then you can kind of see the preferred uh, brands that I use, which I think are higher quality than most. Uh, and, and so number four, another huge one, really, really big one, is iron. Um, this is, I, I have entire articles written about iron itself. Basically, uh, low, low thyroid causes you to have low iron because thyroid's involved in the absorption of iron. And then low iron causes worsening thyroid function. So you get in this really vicious cycle. Well, where everything just kind of gets worse and worse and worse. And then you also, it also, to make matters worse, most doctors aren't looking for iron deficiency. They're looking for iron deficiency anemia. So they generally won't give you iron unless you're also anemic. But that puts you in a situation where you may, where a lot of patients actually can get benefit from supplementing with iron if they're low. But most doctors will miss the fact that they're just, they have suboptimal iron levels simply because they're not anemic. All right. So, what are the symptoms of iron deficiency? Uh, Fatigue and weakness, of course. Shortness of breath, especially if it's worse with with exertion or exercise. Uh, Pale skin, you can see it in the creases of the hands or if you pull down the eyes, you can see it in the eyelids. Uh, Dizziness or a sensation of lightheadedness. Intolerance to exercise, that kind of goes with the one above. Cold hands and cold feet. And then, of course, uh, brittle hairs, or I'm sorry, brittle nails and then hair loss. So, it's worth talking about iron deficiency as a, a common cause of hair loss. Uh, one of the things that, that can, can confuse patients is the fact that hypothyroidism leads to hair loss, but hypothyroidism leads to iron deficiency, and iron deficiency can also cause hair loss. So you have another one of those double whammy things where patients will think that by taking more thyroid hormone, their hair should be growing back, when in reality, it's due to a nutrient, nutrient deficiency, and then in this case, it might be iron or something else even B12, something like that. So, this is why it's really important that you get these levels checked. So, how do you know if you need it? Uh, iron Iron is one of these things, by the way, I should mention that I, you should not replace it unless you are deficient in it. Don't just blindly go out there and start taking an iron supplement. Uh, iron is very much a Goldilocks uh, t- sort of nutrient, meaning too, too little is a problem, but too much can also cause worse problems as well. So, you really need to to get in that kind of optimal range. And the way I look at it, look at it is with these tests. So serum iron, generally in the middle re- of the reference range. Uh, ferritin, I like to see people in the 70 to 80 range, um, but you gotta be careful for, fer- for ferritin because it's also an acute phase reactant. Alright, which means that in certain states of inflammation, ferritin levels will spike up. So patients may have low serum iron, low percent, or, or a normal percent SAT. Um, normal TIBC and they may, act, but a high ferritin, and that doesn't necessarily mean that um, that their that their iron stores are okay. It may just be secondary to some other issue. All right, percent sat I like to see in the 35 to 38 range, and then TIBC generally in the middle of the reference range. You can see uh, a list here of somebody that just has suboptimal iron ranges. So you can see the the the, the results right here of this patient. The serum iron is 80. The TIBC is 325, sorry, the percent sat is 25, and then this patient's ferritin is 46. So, if you just use the reference ranges I put up there, you can kind of determine that this patient's not really where they want to be. So, on a low end of the reference range of the serum iron, they're at 69, or I'm sorry, the low end of the reference range is 69, they're at 80, so they're just barely, you know, kind of above it. And then look at the ferritin. Remember, I said 70 to 80, so this person's got a ways to go on a range of 20 to 250. So that's generally how I recommend doing it with iron. Another important point about iron is the way that you replace it. So um, I found that most hypothyroid patients do better when they use liquid iron. Um, And you want to make sure that you take it with some sort of vitamin C. Nowadays, most liquid irons have vitamin C built into it. Uh, But if you don't, then you can take it with like a, a glass of lemon water or something like that just to make sure you're getting that vitamin C so that you do actually absorb it. All right. But again, you need to also make sure that um, you have the right amount of thyroid hormone because that's also another thing that's required for the absorption. So that was iron, number four. Number five is magnesium. Um, and magnesium is is another big one. I know I'm saying that with every single one, but this, this one definitely is a big deal. And that is because a lot of patients are um, deficient in or have suboptimal magnesium levels without even really knowing it. Um, another issue is that when you have hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism or any of the thyroid dysregulated states, that affects your the excretion in the kidneys, um, uh, the excretion of magnesium in the kidneys. So basically, what will happen is you can pee out more, you can hold on to less, or you can hold on to more. Just kind of t- kind of depends on what's going on um, in your body at the time. Um, it's also worth mentioning that magnesium is is a very powerful. Uh, Supplement, um, especially in the hospital, it's used uh, for certain arrhythmias, um, and it, so it has a lot of value. It's also used uh, intravenously in, in patients who have premature labor, and it can kind of halt the contractions and slow them down. So I'm not messing around when I say that, uh, or I'm not joking when I say that it, it, it's a pretty powerful nutrient. So what are the symptoms of magnesium deficiency that you may have? So muscle cramps or eye twitches, very, very common. Any sort of cramp, until proven otherwise, I generally would consider as a magnesium deficiency. Uh, patients may get anxiety or agitation, they may get restless leg syndrome, uh, they may have REM sleep disorder disorders or disturbances, they can have issues with nail growth, uh, and then there's a bunch of other symptoms that you can see, but those are generally the ones that I find to be the most common. Of course, you can get arrhythmias and all sorts of other things, but that's generally less common if you just have suboptimal levels. If you have very, very low levels, that's more common. Um, this is another one that can be a little bit tricky uh, to test what your levels are. Most well, a lot of a lot of doctors generally will order serum magnesium levels, and so if you're doing that, then I generally recommend it. It's it's higher than two point two, so you can use that as kind of a titration, or you can use that as kind of a, your the goal that you want to reach or get above if you're if you're supplementing with it. And you can also check um, RBC magnesium, which should be in the upper fifty percent of the reference range. Uh, most patients will say, "Well, serum magnesium," or well, some 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 doctors and some patients will are kind of all on board with this RBC magnesium. There's some studies that show that. Um, in states like hypothyroidism, the RBC magnesium still isn't that accurate. So it's another one of those things where um, if you have the symptoms, you fall into the categories, it's generally worth, I think, a trial supplementation, you know, as opposed to something like iron, which you really don't want to supplement with unless you are truly deficient. Dosing can range from 100 to 200 milligrams, all the way up to 2000 milligrams per day. Um, and then the other thing that could be confusing about magnesium is there's a whole bunch of different types of magnesium. So I kind of put the three most important here, magnesium glycinate, magnesium citrate, and then magnesium threonate. So the way that I'll generally look at this is magnesium glycinate should be used, especially if you have hypothyroidism or low serum levels of magnesium, as evidenced by those lab tests we talked about. Magnesium citrate is generally a form that I recommend patients with constipation have, which obviously a lot of hypothyroid patients also have. So you can kind of use those together what will happen if you use magnesium citrate is less of the magnesium is absorbed and more of the, the magnesium stays in the GI tract, which causes, obviously, some loose stool. So you can titrate up to one bowel movement per day and kind of go from there. And then the other one is magnesium 3 8, which uh, is felt to have higher absorption um, in in the brain itself. So, I mean, it gets absorbed and it's felt to have more activity up in the brain, I should I should put it that way. Um, so, generally what I'll recommend is if you have symptoms like depression or insomnia, anxiety, agitation, things like that, that's generally someone that um, I think would tends to do better on magnesium 3 and 8 as opposed to these other forms of, of magnesium. So, that was number five. Number six, and we're cruising right along here, is selenium. And I already mentioned to you that selenium uh, is another one of those things like zinc. Patients just tend to be, especially hypothyroid patients, just tend to be deficient in this nutrient. Uh, It's important because it has been shown in some studies to uh, not only boost T4 to T3 conversion, but it can also reduce autoimmunity and inflammation. And in some cases, especially in Hashimoto's, can actually help lower antibodies or help patients um, use and tolerate iodine. So there definitely are some uses for selenium. Um, Again, I'm coming back to uh, some studies here that show Uh, A lot of patients will say, you don't supplement with selenium unless your serum levels show you're low. Well, there's, you know, some patients actually do better on supra physiologic doses of selenium. So what that means is the lab test can't always be trusted. So even if you have normal levels, that doesn't mean, or even if you have high levels, that doesn't mean that you don't need more. Um, And so some of these studies showed that supplementation, regardless of levels, actually showed improvement and reduction in antibodies. So I I term that kind of supra physiologic levels. Generally, what happens when I see a patient, I kind of make that, or I make that decision based off of a number of factors, but um, I, what I want to point out is don't just base it off of the, off of the ranges in the serum. Um, in terms of dosing, generally 200 to 400 micrograms is what I recommend, but definitely don't exceed 400, um, and then you can kind of see the, the recommended brand that I, I use, which is a, a selenium methionine, so selenium-bounded methionine. Uh, number seven, probiotics, and I know that's not a specific nutrient necessarily, but it is a supplement that has a huge impact um, on your thyroid function. So first of all, up to 20% of thyroid hormone and thyroid conversion occurs in the GI tract, so that's a big deal. Uh, second of all, a lot of, a lot of inflammatory conditions tend to affect the gut, which affects the thyroid conversion. And, and another point is that many hypothyroid patients also have GI-related issues, especially things like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or yeast overgrowth. So those are two very common um, gut dysfunction or or syndromes that occur in patients with hypothyroidism. And in fact, in one study, it showed something. I I believe the number was 54% of hypothyroid patients uh, have uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth as well. So that's a crazy high number. Um, And a lot of patients, when you consider that 20% of your thyroid um, is activated in the gut, if you have some inflammation and drop that 10%, well, I mean, or 5% even, you can see that a lot of the, the conversion power of your body has just been reduced significantly just because of that. Um, so specifically what I want to talk about here in terms of probiotics, because we could go on and on for probiotics. I'm, I'm just going to boil it down to a couple. Um, soil-based organisms. If you have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or yeast overgrowth or chronic constipation or a lot of gas and bloating, uh, especially when eating certain foods, you're somebody that would probably do better on, on a soil-based organism like prescriptocyst. Um, but there's a couple other ones like Primal Defense Ultra um, from Gardens of Gardens of Life, I think, is what it's called. But there's a there's a handful that patients do pretty well on. Um, you can also use beneficial yeast, and so these tend to do really well in patients who who also have yeast overgrowth or patients who have a lot of diarrhea. And uh, that's that's a uh, that that's one of the uh, pearls that I'd leave you with with um, the beneficial yeast. Uh, and then we have kind of the generic ones, which I which I uh, term the lactobacilli plus bifidobacteria based probiotics, which generally everybody nowadays has their own th- flavor of, right? So, if you're not really sure what to use, this is a great place to start. If you know you have some of these other syndromes, then you know you can you can play around with these probiotics. But generally, I think it's worth matching your probiotics to the syndromes and GI issues that you have so I don't recommend you just blindly take probiotics. Um, It's also worth noting that switching up your probiotic is a good thing. Um, Taking your probiotics in high doses and pulsing the dosing that you take is also a good thing. Um, It can kind of mimic the the way that we would have been introduced to probiotics in the past with foods and things like that so there's some benefit there. Uh, That was number seven. Number eight we're talking about enzymes here Uh, and it's important because As I mentioned to you before previously in this, low thyroid hormone leads to low stomach acid and low stomach acid means poor digestion. Um, If you don't break down your food particles enough, you may absorb larger particles of food, uh, which can lead to molecular mimicry and um, intestinal permeability, which is a fancy name for leaky gut and autoimmunity and all of these things. So I generally will recommend, especially if a patient has hypothyroidism and is using natural desiccated thyroid, I will recommend that they... They use um, an enzyme, especially if they have GI issues as well. So you you can use trials. Um, I'll have patients that use them with every meal, but I also recommend using them in between meals. And the reason for that is the absorption of some of these enzymes into the into the body can actually help break down immune complexes and reduce the autoimmunity in certain patients. So there's an added benefit of taking it both with meals and in between meals. I don't see a lot of patients or a lot don't see a lot of providers and Patients talking about that, but definitely uh, uh, worth uh, mentioning there. Um, generally, one to two capsules per day with meals and in between meals. And then you can kind of see there's a lot of different types um, ranging, you know, in terms of enzymes that you can choose from, but I have some of my favorites that I just seem to work well. Uh, iodine, so that was number eight. This is number nine, iodine. Another really big one. Obviously, this one, gets, this one has a lot of controversy surrounding it, but I did want to include it um, Basically, uh, this is what I'm going to talk about with iodine. So if you look at this periodic table of elements, uh, that's what iodine is. It's right down here. You can see this eye. But if you look here, it's got fluorine, um, chlorine, and uh, bromine, or bromide. And all of these are on the same sort of uh, table here and same area in the periodic table of elements, which means that they all share similar um, electron shells, which means that they can all kind of compete for each other. And this is important because a lot of patients... Um, tend to get these other uh, halogens or halides uh, into their body, and they can compete with binding for iodine. And the important thing about that is, it may appear that your thyroid levels are normal in the serum, but you may have an inactive co- thyroid complex because you have, you know, bromide bound in a place where iodine should be bound, and so forth. Um, and so you can see this this type of ha- this thing happening when you give somebody iodine, and now you've outcompeted the bromide and the chloride and the fluoride for binding at the thyroid level and you displace the bromide or whatever it is and you can get reactions called bromoderma or bromism. And it's worth mentioning that a lot of these th- these two conditions present with symptoms that l- can look like Hashimoto's or worsening hypothyroidism. But generally it's just due to a detox reaction. Um, well, I, you call it detox reaction, you call it whatever you want. But basically what your body is doing is it's displacing the bromide and then eliminating it through the skin. So you can actually get pustules that look like acne on the face and it can kind of freak a lot of people out. You can get nausea, vomiting, um, acne, other thyroid symptoms, irritability, etc. And so what I found is a lot of patients who, who uh, when they take iodine and get these symptoms. The first thing they think is, "Oh my gosh, this is this is from the iodine. It's making my thyroid worse." Yada yada yada. When in reality, it may just be a reaction that you know, for lack of a better word, you're detoxing out that bromide or whatever it is. So it's worth considering that before you do. I'm not going to talk about. Um, who, who should do it or who shouldn't, simply because that, that's a we could talk about that for hours. Um, instead, what I want to say is generally in my patient population, um, and I've treated lots of Hashimoto patients, lots of hypothyroid patients, if you start out low, like in the 200 to 300 microgram range, generally iodine is well tolerated if it's used with selenium. And iodine, out of all those supplements, um, is one that can really boost your thyroid symptoms because it's directly involved in the production of thyroid hormone. So, the thyroid molecule T4 and T3 are named that because of the amount of iodine uh, complexes that are on the molecule itself. So, it is very, very important. Um, You'll notice that a lot of patients or a lot of people out there will recommend really high doses up in the milligram dosages and I do use those as well. It just kind of depends on the patient but a, a really safe way to start is to just use the 200 to 300 microgram doses to start and then go up, you know, every two weeks and just kind of see how your body reacts until you get into the the high doses of iodine like the Lugol solution and, and um, Iodorol, et cetera. So um, that, that's basically in a nutshell, I know that was a long, uh, we had a long discussion here, but that, that's in a nutshell the most important nutrients that, that I see many patients being deficient in in the state of hypothyroidism. And you can, I hope you appreciate that they play together with one another. Hypothyroidism can put your body in a state where you malabsorb certain nutrients. Um, or perpetuate the deficiency of certain nutrients, and fixing your body or taking thyroid medication isn't enough to solve that problem. Okay, so the best way to go about this, to recap here, is to look at your labs, look at your blood work, find what your body is deficient in, and then replace those deficiencies specifically with high enough doses that you can replete um, that deficiency in your body and get your cells the amount of nutrients that they need to replace those levels. And that is in, that is uh, as opposed to the other method, which is to say, here's a list of all of the things that's involved in thyroid hormone production and conversion and cellular sensitivity. Let's just give you little doses of everything. All right. So if you use this approach, um, I found great success in helping patients. Obviously, this is just a small part of a treatment plan, um, but it is a very important one because you need those nutrients um, to function optimally. So. I hope you guys enjoyed this. I know it was a long one, longer than what I generally do. Um, if you want to see this full page and get a list of all the studies I've linked to or reference in this, um, please feel free. I'll, I'll provide a link below. Um, this is there a lot of this uh, is based off experience, but it's also scientific and, and uh, literary based as well. So um, if you have any questions, feel free to leave me a comment uh, either below. Um, if you're listening to us do this on the podcast, you can go to my website and leave a comment. Um, Otherwise, I hope you guys enjoyed this and I'll, I'll talk to you guys later.